Welcome to the Temple Forum, a podcast from First United Methodist Church in the heart of Chicago. Here we welcome a diversity of voices and conversation about how we live in the world as people of faith. Hello, I'm Jan Engmeyer. There's a building in Chicago's Loop at the corner of Clark and Washington that may look like any other skyscraper on the outside, but inside it's a beautiful treasure. The building is named the Chicago Temple, and 2024 marks its centennial year. Here to tell us more about the Chicago Temple and how it got its name and some more fun facts is David Foster, a member of the First United Methodist Church at the Chicago Temple and the chair of the Historian Task Force. David, welcome to the Temple Forum podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, tell us about your role on this historian task force. How did you get recruited for this? And uh, how long have you been working on the project? You know, my memory is a little fuzzy, but the task force really dates back to 2020, right in the height of the pandemic. Um, I had just recently joined the church. um, And because I had some work experience with uh, communications, I was asked if I might be a part of the newly established communications committee, or perhaps I should say the reestablished communications committee, and I said that I would do that. Uh, But it became clear that as far as communications is concerned, the next couple of years would be occupied with communicating about the centennial and the history of of the building. So the task force really grew out of the effort to try to recreate a communications committee and um, then the task force itself moved in yet another direction, and a, a specific centennial committee was created as well. So I'm actually on both. And of course, <laughs> really, the historian task force is not uh, as active right now as it was because most of the, the centennial committee itself. And then uh, when that celebration is underway, the historian task force can reconvene and begin to um, work again on finding the history of the congregation and not necessarily the history of the building, but the the church congregation itself. Well, the congregation has been around for a long time, uh, for faith congregation in this, before the city of Chicago was even a city. So the Methodists have been on that corner of Clark and Washington in Chicago's Loop for 185 years. Um, It started a few years prior to that in a different location. Um, The current building was dedicated in 1924. So, boy, what have you learned about the design by the famous architects to be a multi-use skyscraper? At one time, I understand it was the tallest building in Chicago. And the name is always curious to everyone. Do you know the story behind the name? Many good questions. Uh, First, I'm not sure I do know the story behind the name. Actually, what I've discovered is that originally the church leaders expected to call the building the city temple and not the Chicago temple. And then within a few months, and there are no records why that I have found at least, uh, city had become Chicago. So even as early as 1922, when the building um when construction began on the building, it was known as the Chicago Temple. As I say, I haven't found specific minutes that show a discussion about the name and why it was uh, no longer considered uh, appropriate to call it the City Temple. But I would say that calling it a temple 
reflected an idea that church leaders wanted to communicate to the city, and that is that the building, the church, the whole complex would be a major focus of the city. It would be more than just the church home. It would be uh, home for the whole city. You know, other times of history, churches did provide that space where many things happened inside a church building. It was the maybe the biggest central building in a community. Well, I think church leaders thought that the temple could be that here in Chicago. It could become a focus of the spiritual life of the whole city. I don't know what they thought it would look like, but I think that is what they hoped, um, and that that might explain why at least the word temple is in the name, that the, the, the building, they wanted the building to appear a much bigger thing than just the church home of the first Methodist Episcopal Church. The other interesting thing, believe it or not, I have not found any illustrations of the design of the building. Oh, that's uh, there interesting. There are some images. Yeah. Um, that's there are some images of a proposed building that look very much like what was built, but not exactly. So some changes were obviously made. But when that image first appeared, I don't know. I really, I wish I did, but I don't know. And part of the problem here is that, that, and here the history gets a bit complicated. In 1915, when the AIDS Society was created and the church sold its property to the AIDS Society, the actual parcel on which the church was located is smaller than the parcel on which our building is located today. And so any preliminary designs would have been for a smaller parcel in the city. And that added an additional 50 feet to the uh, parcel on which the church is built. So clearly the design had to completely rechange, uh, had to completely change um, because there was now a bigger lot on which to build the church. So that might explain why some of the um, images are not around, that we don't, we don't see them. I would like to say something about the mixed use nature yes, yes. of the building. It's quite unusual. <laughs> it is unusual. But, you know, to me, and, and my knowledge isn't, isn't complete. But to me, the most unusual thing is that the Methodist Church built its first mixed-use building in 1858. The temple is the third mixed-use building that the church was located in. And of course, the church leaders, as early as the 1850s, realized we are in downtown Chicago. Uh, it's We have an opportunity to take advantage of our location and to rent out some of our space to commercial interests and use the profits to promote the church and promote other Methodist churches in the city. And that's, of course, exactly what they did. But that happened as early as 1858. And that seems to me remarkable. It is remarkable. Maybe there were other mixed-use buildings around in those days, but I suspect not. I suspect it was quite revolutionary. So in the sense that the Chicago Temple is a mixed-use building, is it's just business as usual for the Methodist church in downtown Chicago. It, it had been doing that or it had been housed in a mixed-use building as early as 1858. It's all very remarkable. Uh, to me, the history of the church is very, very remarkable. Well, we had some very forward-looking uh, people that were in charge of uh, making the plans for the church and for uh, the other uses in the building. And and I think going back to your comments about uh, its name as a temple in the city center, um, the, that is still true today. Um, we open our doors to many different groups and activities um, 
in addition to our worship services and church activities. So um, I, I think it's aptly named. You know, one other, not one, but two other really interesting features of this church building are the Sky Chapel and the senior minister's parsonage, the, the home for the senior minister. Those were both built in the steeple many years after the actual church structure was completed. What have you found out about those projects and those unique spaces within the very top of the church? That too is a story that I think is still not fully known. I I have yet to unearth some of the minutes from meetings, uh, church council meetings or trustee meetings in which the project to move the parsonage into the tower was uh, approved. And then, of course, to to add the Sky Chapel above it. The interesting thing to me, in 1924, when the building opened, the tower had nothing in it, and it wasn't designed to have anything in it. It was a decorative feature on the building that church leaders wanted because they wanted everybody to know this is not just an office building. This is a church. And they wanted to say that in a big way. And they did. (laughs) They put this huge gothic-looking tower on the top of the building, and then a spire on top of that with a huge cross on top of the spire. And of course, since it was the tallest building in Chicago in 1924, everybody saw it. I guess Reverend Goff, who was the pastor in the 1940s and 50s, must be the person who felt like the tower should be more than just a symbol. It really can be a place where you know we can worship. There can be another worship space up there. It's a place where I can live, the pastor may live. And again, I haven't found a lot of records that detail the thinking behind that, but the parsonage was completed first and I believe opened in January of 1950. And there are some uh, varying dates that you'll see about that, but according to a church bulletin, the Goffs moved into the parsonage in January of 1950, which means to me that it was pretty much completed by the end of 1949. And then the Sky Chapel was begun in earnest after the parsonage was completed. And that makes sense because the infrastructure needed to build the parsonage would then just be extended upwards and the Sky Chapel completed. I was going to say that, uh, you know, one fact that I do know about the Sky Chapel is that it was a gift from the Walgreen family, um, you know, of, of the national retail pharmacy chain. They were members of the church. The Walgreen family uh, gave the Sky Chapel gift in memory of Mr. Charles Walgreen, and it was dedicated on Easter morning in 1952. There are records that show uh, Miss, Mrs. Walgreen having communications with the church uh, as early as 1949 concerning the Sky Chapel. And I can only assume that Reverend Goff had designs on the tower fairly early in his ministry, maybe 1942 or 1943 or 1944. But of course, World War II was taking place and the opportunity to uh, do a a big building project probably seemed um, not possible at at that time. But Parsonage was being completed. Reverend Goff was clearly working with Mrs. Walgreen to to build the temple. And yes, she did want a memorial for her husband, the, pardon me, the Sky Chapel. And yes, she did want that as a memorial for her husband. When I give tours of the Sky Chapel, I try to say, and I feel it's very important to remember this, that in 1924, when the temple was built, the trustees were, yes, all 
men, but this church owes so much to the women who have been members here or who have been associated with this church. Mrs. Walgreen paid for the Sky Chapel, and not only did she pay for the Sky Chapel, she allowed wood from their country home to be uh, cut down and processed and used to uh, make the Sky Chapel. She allowed the um, architect of the Walgreen Company, the architect who was out there designing drugstores around the country, to actually come in and help build the Sky Chapel. She she gave not only the money, she gave so much more. But she was just one of many women who gave so much to the church. We all know Eliza Garrett, who gave the money for the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. A lesser-known story happened in the 1920s when Mrs. Swift, widow of Gustavus Swift of meat-packing fame, gave a huge amount of money to the uh, to the temple so that the temple could be built. These are incredible stories, and I think Mrs. Walgreen especially uh, accomplished that because folks loved to tour the Sky Chapel. You know, in a way, the sanctuary itself is well worth touring and spending time with, but folks do love to go to the Sky Chapel. And of course, it is the tallest chapel in the world, and there's so many fascinating things to say about it. And And I do love to take folks up there. We we need to be grateful for Mrs. Walgreen, but also for the Reverend Goff, who thought, you know, a chapel up there would make a lot of sense. And it yeah. certainly has over the years. Yes, he was quite the visionary. What are some of the other fun facts that you have found during your research? There are lots of interesting things that I would not have expected to find in doing this research. But I would like to point out that we've discovered several very well-known tenants in the building um, that are worth mentioning. And perhaps the most famous, and I would say most famous, is Clarence Darrow. I say that hesitatingly because there are many younger folks today who don't perhaps know or appreciate his legacy in American history. But to me, he's really one of the more famous people who've come and gone here in the Chicago Temple. He opened an office here in 1925 and remained in this building until his death. I believe his most famous cases, the famous Leopold and Loeb murder case, <laughs> and also the Scopes monkey trial case, all took place before he moved into the temple. But it's more than likely that he had follow-up legal work or appeal legal work that he did from within the in the temple. And of course, we also know another famous lawyer was here, uh, Leon Dupre, who um, during the first mayor daily was one of them, was an independent alderman, caused a lot of trouble in the city council and- um, Good trouble. Very uh, important, <laughs> uh, good trouble, and had a very long-lasting law firm. He moved into the temple building in the 1940s, and his firm still exists. He, of course, is no longer with us, but his firm still exists and has an office on the seventh floor of this of this building. I'd also like to mention the coin shop on the first floor. Everybody knows the Harlan Burke coin store on the Clark Street side of the building. Mr. Burke purchased that in the 1980, um, 1980s, maybe, or late 70s. I'm not sure now about the date. But that shop had been in this building since the 1940s. Uh, so there has been a coin shop in the Chicago Temple since the 1940s. And, and so he remains one of our longest tenants in the building. And that, to me, is fairly uh, interesting. I would also like to mention, and I think it's too bad she's no longer here, but in 1924, we had a chocolate shop on the first floor of the building, oh. uh, Mrs. Snyder's Chocolate Shop. 
Uh, wish Mrs. that Schneider's was still there. <laughs> stores, her stores were eventually purchased by the Fannie Mae uh, Chocolate Company, yeah. but she had a number of chocolate stores in the loop and opened one on the first floor of this building in 1924. And she was here for maybe 10 years or so and then decided she needed more space. And so she moved across into the Conway building, which we now know as the um, Burnham Center, just the building directly west of the temple on Washington Street. I don't know how significant that is, but I, I think it's a very fascinating story that, you know, we had we had a chocolate store <laughs> in the building. Well, those are those are good good stories. And it was good for you to mention the Harlan Burke Coins Shop because that has been there a long time and they have such interesting things in their windows. Um, so it's always fun to do a little window shopping while you're walking down Clark Street. So David, what's your hope for the centennial year of the building? What what do you want people to learn about this building at Clark and Washington? So many people pass by it every day, every year, probably without really noticing it, you know, on the street level, they might not even realize that there's a church tucked in there. The surprising thing to me when I make when I lead tours is that most folks don't really understand that it's primarily an office building that they really do know about the church and they know about the chapel, and that's what they want to see. And then they seem to be surprised that the building is really mostly an office building. So it's hard to know how people actually know the temple. Um, but my hope for the centennial year is that more people get to know it one way or another, whether they find out about it as a church home or whether they find out about it as an office building, can take this centennial year um, as an opportunity to to promote, highlight, talk about, <laughs> wax ecstatic about the building and its legacy here in the city, its importance, its significance, um, what is still happening here that has been happening here for 100 years. Um, I just hope we can promote that. We will certainly be doing some activities during the year to try to bring people into the building. Our, perhaps one of our most important activities will be a an architectural symposium where we have some major architects coming in who will talk about the building from that standpoint, the standpoint of its architectural legacy. Um, we hope to get folks into the building for that. You'll notice we have banners outside on Clark Street that highlight our centennial year. We've got a logo out there. Uh, those banners can't be out there indefinitely. They'll have to come down and then we'll put them out again towards the end of uh, the summer next year. And we hope that folks can see those and figure out what's going on, <laughs> what's going on inside. One of the interesting things, when the building was dedicated in 1924, uh, several religious leaders, not just Methodists, but several religious leaders took part in that dedication, including the pastor at the Fourth Presbyterian Church and the rabbi at Temple Israel, located uh, in Hyde Park, and the mayor of Chicago participated in that dedication service. And we get those institutions back here, the Presbyterian Church, the Temple Israel, it's now Temple Isaiah Israel, I believe, and this, the mayor of the city. Can they all be here and somehow recognize the legacy of this building and how important it's been? That may not happen. But anyway, it would be my hope that somehow we can generate this kind of interest in what we're doing. And everybody in the church has to play a part in this. Everybody has to talk it up and, and say, hey, you know, this is a big year for us. And come come see us, come visit the church, visit the building, and, and share in the excitement of the 
of the centennial celebration. Now, I don't know how much of all of that will happen, but I do hope that much of it will, and I think much of it can. So we'll keep our uh, our eyes on that and hope that we can pull something off that's pretty impressive in the next uh, year. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered or that you'd like to mention? John, I would like to say something, and I guess I need to be careful how I say this, but I, when we're in the Sky Chapel on that, uh, welcoming floor just below the chapel. Um, you can look out to the west through glass windows, and you can very clearly see the Sears, or more correctly, the West Tower, which is, of course, today the tallest building in Chicago and wasn't the tallest building in the world for quite a few years. And I always like to say, think about it. In 1924, we, Temple, was the tallest building in Chicago. Compare that with the Willis Tower. And just ask yourself, what if church leaders today said the Chicago Temple is no longer adequate for our purposes as a church in downtown Chicago? We need a bigger, bigger building. Could we build biggest building in Chicago today? Could we build a building 102, three, four stories tall? Could we do that? I don't think so. But anyway, my point is this. Church leaders back in the 19-teens and the 1920s were incredibly daring. They did the virtually impossible. They built the tallest building in Chicago, and they were a small church. And when I say a small church, in 1915, when the church council met to vote on selling the property to the Aid Society, 15 people participated in the meeting. 15 people. Oh my gosh. It was a small church. And they were filled with vision. They were filled with daring. They were filled with faith. And they would not take no for an answer. They found a way to build the Chicago Temple. And it wasn't easy. They had huge legal and financial hurdles to overcome. It's also true that the church had a lot of well-connected members in those days, pretty well-to-do, but also very well-connected, and they could accomplish things that maybe other folks couldn't. Nonetheless, it wasn't a sure thing, and they did it. I would just like to say, we as United Methodists today struggle. You know, there's all sorts of struggles in our church. Churches are drinking. The church is, is uh, <laughs> Many Methodists are disaffiliating. The church is under a great deal of stress today, and one wonders what the future holds. But in the 1920s, our church leaders had all the faith to make sure that Methodism made a powerful statement in this city, right in the heart of downtown Chicago, across from City Hall and the county building. They wanted that statement. They wanted the Methodist church to be a powerful statement. And I would hope that we could all gain strength from that ourselves and begin to look at our own ability to accomplish things that may not seem possible because it's been done before and it can be done again. I think and, that is an excellent way to end. It, they had an amazing vision. Yes. And it is remarkable that that building was built. Um, and that the congregation has been on that corner. The Methodist congregations have been on that corner for 185 years, and we're not going anywhere. 
Well, thank you, David Foster, for telling us about the history of the Chicago Temple Building. We look forward to celebrating the 100th anniversary of the beautiful church building throughout 2024. I'm Jan Engmeyer. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Temple Forum. You've been listening to the Temple Forum from First United Methodist Church in Chicago. You can find more conversations like this online at chicagotemple.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us again soon.